Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tyler Matheson on day 124 of the coronavirus crisis. As lockdown orders end across the country, there are new questions tonight about the potential danger. What we're actually seeing is cases growing. Has the effort to contain the virus failed? A new warning tonight. I'm pleased to announce that Gilead now has an EUA from the FDA for remdesivir. Gilead gets emergency authorization for use from the White House. This on a day when stocks took a big hit. China has issues, and the president will be dealing with those issues. After new tariff warnings from the White House, the Dow falling 620 points. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Tyler Matheson. And good evening once again, everyone. Welcome. Stocks plunging to start the month of May following the best month for equities in the major indexes in decades. Today, the Dow dropped more than 600 points and the S&P 500 down more than two and a half percent. The Nasdaq losing more than three percent. The Dow being dragged lower by seven percent sell-offs in Dow Chemical and ExxonMobil. At the Nasdaq, big tech falling, Amazon leading the way downward off about 7.5% after its earnings earlier this week. Stocks finishing lower now for the second consecutive week. We start tonight with CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the Food and Drug Administration, who says that the mitigation efforts to try and blunt the disease in the United States have failed or at least not achieved the success that we would like to have. If you take the New York area and the Pacific Northwest out of the equation, the rate of hospitalization, says Dr. Gottlieb, are rising. Good evening, Dr. Gottlieb. Welcome. Good to have you with us. In a day where we had some good news on the treatment front with the uh, sort of emergency uh, release of remdesivir, these numbers are very, very sobering, even as states begin to open up. Explain the numbers, please. Well, look, just to touch on that good news, we're making a lot of progress with respect to technology that could help thwart this, uh, this epidemic, not just treatments, but potentially vaccines as well. So that's the good news. And we're also dramatically expanding testing. But at the same time, we're seeing a persistent uh, epidemic in this country. We've reached a plateau of about 30,000 cases a day and around 2,000 deaths a day. And we're not really coming down. So if you look at the modeling right now, it predicts that there's going to be another week or two of that plateau. But there is some risk that as we start to reopen the country and we, we see increased infections because of that, because there will be an upswing in infections as we start to reopen aspects of the economy and reduce social distancing, 
that we just get to a point where there's persistent infections in this country of 20 to 30,000 cases a day that we're diagnosing. And remember, we're probably only diagnosing one in 10 infections, maybe a little bit less than that. So if we're saying there's 20,000 cases a day, there's really 200,000 cases a day. And so we need to understand what that looks like if what we have, what we end up with over the summer, is just really a slow simmer, um, that we have this persistent infection, and then we head into the fall. And at that point, upwards of 15% of the population will have had the infection, but we face risk in the fall as we all come back to schools and college campuses and we're back at work in more earnest that all that slow simmering infection through the summer could lead to some spontaneous combustion. I can well imagine that a lot of people at home are wondering, you use the word slow simmering infection, persistent infection. What is that going to mean for summertime activities? And then I'll come back to some more numbers. Right. Well, that's the question we need to ask ourselves, because we put in place the population-based mitigation. It definitely reduced the velocity of the epidemic. The reproduction rate, the number of new cases that you're getting for each individual case, is now about 1.15 if you look at the different modeling nationally. Lower in some parts of the country, obviously. The tri-state area, the New York area, has come down quite substantially. But we're still seeing the epidemic expand, but expand much more slowly. So instead of the, the cases doubling every three to four days, which is what was happening in the hotspots at the outset of this infection, now it's doubling maybe every 25 days over the course of the whole country. But that's still an expanding epidemic. And so what does life look like? What does the economy look like if we just have to mm -hmm. live with COVID-19, if it continues to circulate in the background? And I think that that's a different economy. It's one where we're more careful about what we do and certain things don't come back in the same way until we get to a vaccine. I guess the good news is that we are making rapid progress on those therapeutics and may have a vaccine, hopefully, um, for partial deployment in time for the fall. So let me make sure I understand what you're saying here, that the, the message behind these numbers, if you take out New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pacific Northwest and California, you've got rising case counts, you've got rising hospitalizations. Does that all add up to all of this mitigation, the, the clinical word, that it hasn't worked or at least is leaky? It's leaky. Um, it hasn't worked as robustly as it did, for example, in China, but China took much more draconian steps than us. If you look at Italy and Spain, you see a similar circumstance in the United States where they had an extended plateau in the number of new cases on a daily basis and a very slow decline. They are declining now. You know, the risk in the U.S. is that we have a much more extended plateau. That seems to be what's happening. But what happens if we really don't have a substantial decline and we just sort of plateau? It comes down a little bit, but we have this persistent infection in the background, um, because as we restart activity, the cases aren't going to go down. They're going to go up slightly. And so, you know, we're facing a situation where we just maybe could end up settling out at, you know, 20,000 infections a day. And then what does that look like distributed across the United States? Can we mitigate large outbreaks if there is this persistent mm -hmm. infection in the mm -hmm. background? That's the risk we face. I'm not saying that's going to come to pass, but it's a risk that we face looking at the data right now. There's 25 states where the number of new infections on a daily basis is actually increasing right now. I want to show the viewers some numbers that are scrolling on the screen and get you to comment on them. They come from uh, Wharton, Penn Wharton, ironically, the president's alma mater. And they did some modeling that showed that if we keep the uh, economy shut down tight the way it's been until June 30th, we would still have 
almost a doubling in deaths. Uh, we'd have 117,000 deaths, including those that we've had so far, which is well, in, well up in the high 60s. If we partly reopen the economy between now and then, we would have a total death count of 162,000. And if we fully reopen the economy, we'd have 350,000 deaths. And if we went back to the way the, the economy was operating on February 1st, between now and June 30th, we could have total deaths of nearly a million, 950,000. Do those numbers make sense to you? Well, look, we know two things right now. We know that the, um, the declines in new cases hasn't been on the pace that we expected. We expected to start seeing more sustained declines in new cases by now. So there's been this persistent plateau. And we also know that there's extreme economic hardship from the mitigation that we've implemented. And we can't go on much longer like this. There's people being hurt on both sides of this. Um, and the, the steps that we've taken, the population-based mitigation that we've taken and the shutting of the economy itself is having significant public health consequences. And so we need to figure out what we're going to do if, in fact, the mitigation mm -hmm. doesn't reduce the cases substantially from here. And we just continue to have some persistent spread. What does that look like? I mean, we, we can start to think about that, but that is a reality that we need to contemplate. Right. Dr. Gottlieb, the man who never sleeps. Get some rest this weekend, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right. The FDA approving, you bet, the FDA approving Gilead's remdesivir drug for emergency coronavirus treatment. It's a big announcement, and it came after the company's CEO met with President Trump today. Let's go to Kayla Tausche. Kayla. Tyler, this move had been in the works for a few days at least. Today, the government granting remdesivir emergency use authorization for the duration of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to a release by the Food and Drug Administration. Today, Gilead's CEO, Daniel O'Day, was on hand in the Oval Office, joined by President Trump and the country's top health officials to discuss that decision. And he said the company is going to be ramping up production to meet the needs of all these patients. So we're talking, you know, about hundreds, more than 100,000 treatment courses, which, again, we, we, we need more. <laughs> and we're still ramping up and we're going to have more in the second half of the year. But at least it's a start. The authorization comes after a trial by the National Institutes of Health showed that remdesivir accelerated the recovery of patients and shortened hospital stays for those who are among the most severely ill with COVID-19. Now, the full data from that federal trial are not available, but the FDA said in a release today, quote, given there are no adequate approved or available alternative treatments, the known and potential benefits to treat this serious or life-threatening virus currently outweigh the known and potential risks of the drug's use. The number of deaths in the U.S. from coronavirus surpassing the death toll from the Vietnam War this week. Today, those deaths are nearing 65,000. Tyler, the president, said today he hopes the death toll remains below 100,000. Back to you. As do we all. Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. For more on this, let's bring in Dr. Edward Ellison. He's co-CEO and medical director of the Permanente Group in Southern California. Dr. Ellison, welcome. It's great to see you again. Let's start, if we might, with a little uh, uh, discussion of remdesivir. How encouraged are you and the fraternity of physicians you lead uh, in, uh, uh, in Southern California about this possible treatment? Well, it, it is encouraging, Tyler. Um, one of the challenges we face right now is that we don't know exactly what will be most effective against this novel virus. So the 
many clinical trials are going on right now are helping to inform that. And of course, with the internet and the rapid spread of information, we're all seeking to learn from each other what is most effective in treatment for these patients. And certainly remdesivir has shown to be encouraging news um, with the, the trial outcomes that we, that we know so far. What have you what discovered, have you Ed, as you, as you and your fellow physicians have treated uh, uh, COVID patients, what have you learned about what works best? Well, I think there's a number of factors. Um, certainly, we know the good news is that the majority of those affected do recover and their symptoms are mild or moderate. Of those who are hospitalized, um, however, they can have quite a stormy course um, with devastating outcomes. And the symptoms tend to be evolving also, and we're seeing uh, blood clotting issues, uh, not just the fever, cough, and respiratory symptoms, but blood clotting issues, um, other uh, manifestations of the illness. Um, it, as has been mentioned right. in right. other articles, proning, for example, having the patient lie on their stomach for parts of the time has been shown to uh, diminish the need for intubation and actually Patients seem to be tolerating much lower oxygen levels than, than we would normally expect to see. So we're learning a lot. Every day we're learning more and more about how to more effectively manage uh, the virus. I want to turn, Ed, I want to turn our conversation to what you're seeing on the front lines and the stresses and strains that doctors are under. Doctors, in my experience, are perfectionists. They want to make us all better. And when they see that they can't do that, they must take it deeply, deeply hard. You've done a lot of study on this. You point out that doctors have a higher suicide rate than the general population. Do you expect that there is going to be a wave of PTSD through the medical profession after this? That's a great question, Tyler. Um, you're right. As physicians, those qualities that make us really great physicians, also those qualities that are not the, in the best interest of our well-being. So we tend to be perfectionists. We set very high standards. Um, our patients come first, obviously. We sacrifice our health, our relationships, um, always in, in the name of the calling that, that we have undertaken. Um, we never ask for help. Uh, oftentimes that's viewed as, as weakness. And so it doesn't set you up to deal with stress very well. The good news is that's changing. I think we all understand that's not the way to have healthy physicians or, or healthy, healthy patients. What this pandemic has done is to accelerate um, many of those, those symptoms. So physicians are also human and, and normal. And so physicians had fear as well. Will they be infected? Will they take the infection home to their family? So many of the doctors I talk to, they're concerned, am I going to take this to my family? Uh, they're self-isolating, um, staying away from home or even right. sending their young children to stay with grandparents uh, to protect their, um, their loved ones. And so that also makes it an isolating experience. And it is frustrating for physicians Quick if final, we, don't, if we can't cure. Quick final question. I know you, you all are frustrated and you feel like you're failing, but, but the successes are really memorable. In many parts of the country, physicians and the first responders and the frontline people are getting ovations every night at seven o'clock. Do these kinds of displays of public appreciation make a difference to you all? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, gratitude is medicine. And I, I believe we're, we're grateful for what we get to do and make a difference for those lives that we save. When you make a difference, when you hold a hand, even if sometimes you can't save the life, if you can be there with someone at that last moment, um, that means so much. Right. And right. the fact that, yes, there's been such a wonderful outpouring. I've seen um, 
you know, what the, the other first responders who we so respect have expressed their gratitude. You see chalk on the sidewalk right. and kids do right. say thank right. you. Right. Signs right. say heroes work here. That, that means so much. Absolutely. All right. Ed Ellison, thank you very much, Dr. Ellison, with Kaiser Permanente. Here is what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Talk from the top. There'll be a lot less deaths, a lot less cases, and that will start to rebuild confidence in America. There is likely to be some, some impact to, uh, to staffing levels. CEOs sound off on the state of business and the American economy. Plus, getting tests where they're needed most. One executive on the fastest way to get it done. And they wanted products that could help protect them. A creative way to help the men and women on the front lines protect themselves. Before the break, images from around the country on the 124th day of the coronavirus crisis. defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Well, CEOs looking ahead to how their companies will operate over the next few months. And here's what they're saying from the top. As we move through this to the back half of this year, uh, there is likely to be some, some impact to, uh, to staffing levels and, and workforce. But that was work that had begun even before uh, the coronavirus. The most important thing is, is are patients getting better? And patients are getting better with remdesivir in this hospitalized, very serious situation. So that's what we're focused on. And now we're focused on building on that, uh, on that early uh, convincing data. I do tend to think that as we move into May and we see the states opening up slowly but surely, and the death toll, the tragedy uh, really starting to unfold in a way that will be much more positive. There will be a lot less deaths, a lot less cases, and that will start to rebuild confidence in America uh, with our consumers and the overall economic system. I think, uh, and many people think, and data supports that, that we're going to see disinfecting products on consumers' minds in more pronounced ways than in the past for a very long time. So that gives us an opportunity to serve more consumers. I really don't think 
working from home, even though we're doing it flawlessly, even though we took 180,000 people and did it, even though we deployed 100,000 laptops, even though we have people who are working from home that we never thought would work from home. The reality is we're more effective for the customer when we're in those buildings and, and doing it. Here are the headlines on day 124 of the crisis. The CDC says nearly 5,000 workers in meat and poultry processing plants have come down with COVID-19 and at least 20 have died. New York State schools will be closed for the rest of the academic year. And Utah Senator Mitt Romney proposing a plan to give essential workers up to $12 an hour in hazard pay during the pandemic. Well, we're talking tonight about the logistics of getting tests where they need to be. Dr. John Cohen is executive chairman at Bioreference Laboratories. Dr. Cohen, welcome. Good to have you with us. You've been involved with testing from the very start. You, in fact, uh, were involved up in New Rochelle in the earliest days of this. How is the testing going uh, logistically? Well, logistically, it's going uh, very well. Uh, Bioreference uh, was partnered with New York State. We did do the New Rochelle drive-thrus, and now we're doing upwards of about 40 drive-thrus around the country. We serve our client base. We're serving a huge number of hospitals. And then, of course, we're serving a bunch of uh, governments. We're serving New York State, Florida, New Jersey, city, multiple cities uh, throughout the country right now. I read an article the other day, Dr. Cohen, that that the laboratories are able to process many more tests than they're actually receiving and that the, that the bottleneck is in transporting the, the tests and the vials or getting the vials or getting the swabs or getting the reagents. Could you comment on that? In other words, is the laboratory capacity doesn't seem like it's the problem. It's other things in the chain to the extent there are problems. So, so first off, we're talking about the diagnostic test, the PCR test for the presence of the virus, and we could talk about the serology in a minute. But the, the issue on availability of tests is a complicated answer because it's different for different entities. So, for instance, uh, we're a commercial laboratory, one of the largest commercial laboratories in the country, serving all 50 states, with labs in six different states. Um, so we originally had a little bit of a supply issue on the swab side. We fixed the, the supply the supply chain issues, and we're running four different types of platforms. What I mean by that, we're running four different types of analyzers. We all require different reagents and all require different recipes to get us to the same place and the same diagnosis. So our issues are frequently a little bit different than other issues. Our issues had been up to recently mm-hmm. is we needed more analyzers, actually. It wasn't as much as a reagent issue or supply side. It was really actually getting more machines. So we've now, we've now scaled. We're doing 25,000 tests a day, and we're going to scale up to 40,000 within the next couple of weeks. Um, so it really is variable from lab to lab. The, the commercial labs, as you probably know, are responsible for upwards of almost uh, 50%, if not more, of the, all the testing that's done in the country. We've done over, we've done close to 600,000 tests uh, since we started this uh, back, uh, it's about six or seven weeks ago now. So the issues, though, are, are, I would say is different. It really is different from lab to lab. The the hospital labs have done the best they can. The state laboratories have done the best they can. But they were, they were never much in a position to really scale as a commercial lab does. So it really is different lab to lab and type of lab. Let me ask you a, a sort of freshman level question, if I might. One of the things that's perplexed sure. me is what is the ultimate value of diagnostic testing when someone, they're 
obviously false negatives. In some cases, you can be negative on Tuesday and positive on Thursday. So if you're not testing all the time, what are you really learning? Could you just give me a quick answer on that, please? Sure. I mean, if, if someone tests positive for the, for the virus, uh, they need to really be very careful about who they're exposed to. They're shedding virus. They're highly infective. This, this disease, as you probably know, has a significant transmission rate. So one, you should really, really be isolated away from anybody. Secondly, is it depends on what your treatment is. You know, the, the diagnosis is still the diagnosis, and then we need to know how to treat you. There's been an entire spectrum of, of different presentation and illnesses. Some people barely get the, get the disease, and some people, as you know, get, get intubated and unfortunately die. Um, and then, of course, there's yeah. the patient. Some people get in their 20s, 30s, 40s. It's been relatively unpredictable about who gets the disease. But, but making the diagnosis is the first part of, I'm a physician, so it's the first thing you need to do is make the diagnosis and decide how you go forward from there. Right. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for your time. Love the album covers behind your rubber sole, one of my favorites. <laughs> we appreciate your time tonight. Thanks very much, Tyler. Well, the protective gear, war- uh, you bet. The protective gear worn by doctors and nurses on the front lines are designed to save lives. But as these pictures show, a long shift in those medical masks can leave painful battle scars. Tonight, the CEO of BodyGlide, a company that makes anti-chafing products for athletes, runners, pivots to protect healthcare workers. Here's Bill Sternoff in his own words. You've seen some of the N95 masks, and those masks are made to be worn tight against the face. And many of these doctors and nurses have experienced chafing, irritation, rash, in some cases, raw skin, wearing them for hours at a time. We were contacted by a number of critical care workers, people who have used our products to protect their skin, oftentimes in sports. They wanted products that could help protect them. They said, can you make something and specifically call it out for the face? I have talked with nurses across the country, people who we have discovered need something that we can make for them and get their input. And we turned things as quickly as we could. The first emergency order that we placed was 100,000 units. That was BodyGlide CEO Bill Sternoff in his own words. A lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Next tonight, The Path Forward. Three business owners shared their stories of navigating their companies through crisis, from problems to triumphs. Their paths forward next on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow. 
today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. America reopening. But much of the damage to individual businesses has already been done. Tonight, three owners with employees to pay and pressure mounting on what they've learned so far, how they're adapting, and what they really need. The path forward. Your business begins now. Once again, here's Tyler Matheson. Thanks for joining us tonight and welcome back. Before we bring in tonight's business owners, I want to introduce my consultants for the evening. Our ninjas, Michelle Romanow. She co-founded ClearBank, involved in helping fund thousands of e-commerce businesses. And Dave Dodson, a professor of management at Stanford's Business School, and he's also an investor in several businesses. Welcome to both of you. Michelle, let me just see. It's been, I guess, a week since you've been with us, uh, or maybe even a little more. Where do we stand on plans for the reopening, and, how, and what are you hearing from the business owners you are working with? How nervous are they? You know, I think things are tough. Um, if you look at you know employment numbers in February, 20% of people that had a job in February no longer have a job today. And so, you know, the businesses that have seen these massive declines, most of these small businesses, we're not seeing more declines. A lot of their businesses went down almost 100%. Um, and we're not seeing those same declines in consumer spending because I think the stimulus dollars have started to flow in. But everyone is getting nervous about how long this could possibly last. We're seeing some early results um, out of Georgia and then soon to be out of Texas this week to see what happens when we try and re re reopen these economies and see if we can do so safely. But I think business owners are nervous and they're on edge. Dave, as businesses reopen, many of them are going to be subject to some restrictions in terms of the numbers of people who can come in. Restaurants may be able only to operate at 25 or 30 percent of capacity. That must have them very worried because it's very difficult uh, to run profitably at those sort of lower throughputs. Oh, yeah. And the business owners that I talk to, their, their biggest concern is that they have no visibility on what the plan is from the government side. You know, the government can't tell you when the pandemic's going to end. We understand that. But they could be telling business owners based on different things that we will or won't do or can or can't do. And right now, business owners, unfortunately, are flying blind. They're flying blind on when they're going to be opening, what that looks like, and what government assistance they might have. So they get a PP loan, for example, and they don't know whether they should bring their employees back or not because after the eight weeks, maybe they're going to turn around and lay them off again to begin with. So they shouldn't be bringing the employees back on. So it's the lack of visibility, the lack of a roadmap or a plan from the government that's really crippling business owners' ability to plan for this. Is it, is it a, a problem with government or is it, is it the very nature of this, of this illness that, that government doesn't know whether or how badly the disease might come back or sustain over the summer? Absolutely. The government can't tell us when the pandemic is going to end, but they can say that if we reopen in June, it will look like this or unemployment benefits, the extra unemployment benefits will be continued until business returns to normal or there will be a subsequent program after the PPP if necessary. They don't have to tell us what's going to happen. They've got, they don't have a crystal ball and they're, they're not mind readers, but they can tell us if certain things happen, this will be the government's response or roughly the right. government's response. The PPP program only gave us eight weeks of visibility. 
eight weeks. Yeah. And, and, and of course, uh, businesses run on the ability to see into the future and forecast and, and uh, adjust as, as accordingly. Uh, real estate, of course, has been one of the hardest hit businesses throughout this coronavirus uh, epidemic as tenants struggle to pay their rents. Eric Casabori is owner of CEVD Property Management in Florida. Mr. Casabori, welcome. Good to have you with us. And we'll engage you in a conversation here with our with our business ninjas. How has your business been hit? Give us some numbers. Give us sort of the psychic impact as well. Thanks, Tyler. I think uh, all landlords collectively across the board, colleagues of mine. Oh, oh, sorry about that. Uh, Collectively, all the landlords that I've talked to, including myself, uh, colleagues of mine in the commercial real estate space, we're all seeing the same thing. I was on a a Zoom call this morning uh, in a group, uh, the Tiger 21 group that I'm uh, a chair of. And most of those guys in there, a lot of them are real estate investors and they own properties. And the collective answer was April was difficult. Some of the bigger tenants paid, uh, but rolling into May, there's a lot of posturing uh, that some retailers especially did not want to pay. Forget about the small salons and the restaurants that were not able to open. And now that some states are allowing them to open, opening at the capacity that David mentioned, 25%. uh, If you do the math, it doesn't take a, a business scholar from Harvard to tell you that. Uh, if you're, you're, you're on 8 or 10% margins to begin with and you've reduced your potential gross income by 75%, uh, that math doesn't work to run the business, let alone pay the rent in the space that they're renting from. Michelle, any advice here for Eric as he looks at his, at his tenants who this time around may not be quite as able or willing to pay uh, the rent that he's owed? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult. I look at, you know, ClearBank has 200 employees. We haven't been able to go to our office even for the last six weeks. And so it's incredibly difficult for small businesses who have seen their businesses go to zero. I mean, have you seen um, there any win-win here where, you know, commercial landlords can give some relief in exchange for something else? Like, is there any anything else besides devastation for both sides? I think that's an interesting question you asked, Michelle, because uh, we don't know the depth and the breadth of what this is going to be. So you can make a negotiation with a tenant today that could be essentially very different in two or three months from now if, in fact, things don't change. You know, we talked about the PPP loans and how they're helping fund and bridge a little bit of a gap. So we're seeing some tenants make that that payment. But you negotiate a, a deferment and you put it off to the back end. And for a landlord, that's not the worst thing in the world, because if you're going to sell your, your, your shopping center, you're selling on the cap rate of the future earnings, not the past ones. The past ones are irrelevant. So you could essentially increase the future earnings and you can increase the rent on, on some of those tenants in, in the latter part of their, their lease years. Uh, but that's only if the case, if everything goes according to what we think is the plan. The challenge is, is there is no real end in sight, which makes this a much more challenging environment than it was, let's say, in 2008 when there was a, a real estate uh, downplay. Eric, I have a question for you. I'm thinking about what you're saying and how you know, the situation in your malls, you know, starts to bubble up because it's not unique just to your your world. I mean, it's all across the country. And I've been worrying about this sort of second wave of economic devastation that could happen with the real estate and the banking industry, because I think about all these tenants that are renegotiating their leases that are less favorable to the landlords. Then a shrinking in demand, you've got places like that are going out of business. You've got e-commerce that's coming in. You may have people not go to the hair salon and use Madison Reed to color their hair. And then lastly, the stress that's on the landlords with, you know, they're not collecting rent. At some point, don't we reach a situation where these mortgages are underwater and landlords start to throw the keys over their shoulder and that ripples through the banking community? 
And that's precisely the, the biggest part of this challenge, because it's really a three-party uh, effective deal. Most of the commercial landlords that I know, that I, I'm affiliated with, uh, there is some type of, of bank loan, a commercial note, whether it's a mortgage or a, or a private mortgage. There's something on there that you have to, that's an obligation. So even if you negotiate with your tenant, you may have taken that obligation on with, let's say, the intent that your tenant was going to pay $45 a foot, when in fact that was a restaurant that maybe in 2017, 18, or part of 19 could have afforded that. Looking forward, similar to like when someone signed a lease in 2006 or 7, uh, those leases were probably signed at their peak possibility of what they could pay. And landlords leverage based on that. So they go out and they get a loan based on what that revenue, that income would be from those leases. Well, now that same tenant may not be able to pay $20 a foot, maybe 50% of that rent for the next foreseeable future. Or, or who knows, if it's an office environment, they may not need 20, 30,000 square feet or 10,000. Maybe they need two because they have learned to work remotely in the Zoom environment that everyone's been talking about. If that's the case, the landlords then have a trouble with their partner, their banker. And, you know, the banks are just getting out from clearing the deck from 2008 with all the assets they took back. To get another wave of those assets, there needs to be a, a, some type of other negotiation besides the tenant-landlord negotiation. The banks must, and whoever's holding those notes, is probably going to have to do something with the commercial landlords and, and those business folks that own these properties. Thank you. It's amazing how it reverberates through the system. Eric Casaburi, thanks very much. We'll take a quick break. Here's what's coming up. Thank you, guys. Forward. Imagine being the head of a company in the travel business. Flights, cruises, and everything else halted. One woman shares her story next. Plus, breaking through in Baton Rouge. What one business owner in the bayou did to move his company forward during the crisis. Before the break... Images from around the world on the 124th day of the outbreak. Welcome back, everybody. Jennifer Wilson Butiget is co-president of Valerie Wilson Travel. It's a family-owned operation with locations all around the country, catering to corporate and leisure travelers. And as cruises stopped and nobody wanted to fly, her business basically came to a complete halt. Dave, I know you spoke with Jennifer earlier. It's over to you. First of all, I was—I've been thinking a lot about our conversation and talking about the importance of leadership with a company that has over 150 employees and how they're not just looking for you for a paycheck, but they're also looking for you for some sense of direction. And I'm interested in how do you manage as a leader in an environment like that where, you know, this is a family-owned company and employees are looking to you about their future and, and they can't plan for it any better than you can. How do you sort of manage through that personally? I know it's a personal question. Uh, Dave, great to hear your voice and thank you for letting me join you this evening via phone. I hope I can help share um, a little input from us, but other small businesses. It's emotional. It's a roller coaster. Um, indeed, we have over 
115 employees, but we also have a network of 175 independent contractors and do business in eight states and 15 locations. They are expecting from us communication, clarity, and community. And on a weekly basis, we are holding at least two town hall meetings via Zoom where we have attendance over 150. It's important to tell them we don't have all the rules and we don't have all the facts. It's been heart-wrenching to let people go, but they can understand and believe that our goal is to keep as many employees as possible with benefits that are needed. Thank you. Michelle? Yeah, Jennifer, I, I, there is absolutely no roadmap, and I think you're doing the right thing. And that's what I've told my employees, too, is I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, but I will be totally transparent with every day. I mean, do you think there is – what do you think this recovery may look like? Like, are we even ready to go back into airports from a health and safety perspective? It's kind of unreasonable to think about business travel if people have to be quarantined for 14 days. Like, do you see any bright spots here in terms of recovery? Uh, Michelle, a lot of great points in there. What I'd like to say is we were very much a viable business. We just came off our most successful year after 40 years of almost 40 years in business. We've survived SARS and MERS, Ash Cloud, Gulf War One and Two, and 9-11, which was devastating. This is worse than 9-11 and the 08 Wall Street crisis combined because it's a health crisis. Wow. And it's the consumer confidence and it's a tolerance for risk. So all the other factors that we had planned for as a business to say it might be down 5 to 25% for two to four years, that went out the window when literally our business stopped overnight. We were 75% international and typically 75% front of the plane, first business class. The corporate traveler, there are many issues there. A Zoom and telecommuting and meetings has become popular, but I think it's the concern of corporations. They don't want to put their employees in harm's way or perception of harm's way until we have a cure or a vaccine. On the leisure side and vacations, no one's going to take two weeks to quarantine before you go somewhere. And I firmly believe travel is going to come back because a corporate client is going to want to look a client in the eye, shake their hand. A leisure customer is going to want to dream and go back to an amazing place with great memories. But I think right now what we have to focus on is the reality as a business owner and with the tens of thousands of other travel companies as part of this ecosystem, it's a cash flow crisis. Jennifer, thank you very much for sharing your story tonight. We appreciate it. Jennifer Wilson Butiget, co-president of Valerie Wilson Travel. And next, one business owner who has broken through in the midst of crisis. Welcome back, everybody. Now, now one business that has shifted to online sales, only allowing the company to keep its six employees on staff. Joining us now is Kerry Guglielmo. He's the owner and CEO of ASTE Commerce. He is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Kerry, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us. I know, Michelle, you've spoken to Kerry, as has Dave, but Michelle, you lead it off. Yeah. So, Kerry, how has your business been doing? It sounds like um, you've been able to do some pivots. Uh, you've been able to secure some PPP funding. Like, how long do you think that's going to last? And, and what are you doing to, to get there? Well, uh, guys, hey, thanks so much for having us on. And, 
you know, it's been very, very, very interesting. We were very, uh, you know, very fortunate with PPP, and uh, we're very grateful. And we had some success with PPP uh, some uh, maybe three weeks ago. And, uh, you know, uh, we have a very talented team, and, uh, you know, it's all, it's all about your people, right? So we, we were able to retain our team, and uh, we are a technology company. And, uh, you know, again, uh, just very, very fortunate that we got the PPP and had the federal government's, uh, uh, you know, guidance and whatnot. And uh, it means the world to us that, we're, you know, and it allows us to continue to uh, be aggressive. Because today it sounds like you guys are making clothing that's typically for events or for corporations. Like now that there's less events, you know, how is this going to play out and how have you kind of pivoted the business? Well, there are less events. Uh, however, it's, you know, what we do is we build e-commerce web store platforms where folks can order things from home. And whether it's a buyer or a, an employee uh, or a C-level executive, they can order things from home and, and drop ship all around the country. And, uh, you know, that, that was the original formation of our model. And, uh, and so we feel good about it. I mean, it's been a very, very, you know, obviously cash flow is, is, is of course, always a concern during these times. But, uh, you know, if you, you have to embrace, obviously, you have to embrace technology in these days, and uh, and we're big believers in that. No, I'm thinking, Fury, about your, your business. And first of all, it is so nice to hear news from a company that deserved to get the PP loan and got it, and you're putting it to good use. Congratulations on that. question I had, though, for you is, as these workforces are spread out and a lot, so many people are working at home, have you found any opportunity to go to these companies and say, well, you need to keep cohesion with your employees and you need to keep some identity and using your products to go out to these employees while they're at home so that they can still identify with their company and still feel like they're. Well, you still have to maintain your culture. You know, if your employees are at home, you still have to maintain your culture and your identity and your brand, if you will. You know, again, the brand, we talk a lot about the brand. We're in the brand business, we feel. We're in the merchandise business, but we, you know, the co-branded logo merchandise business. But it is it is your mm -hmm. brand, and, and whether you're at home or whether you're uh, you know, telecommuting or whether you're doing telemedicine or, or what have you, or whether you're just trying to be safer and, and you know, we're, we're starting to, you know, uh, move a lot more healthcare products and, and whatnot. And it's just, um, it, we feel that it's an important thing to, to, to always stay connected with your team because, again, anything, you know, any company, it doesn't matter how big or small you are, any company, at the end of the day, the DNA of a company is about their people, right? And we believe that. Thank you. Carrie, thank you very much. Carrie Guglielmo of AST e-commerce. Uh, and let me turn back to Dave and Michelle for a final thought here. Michelle, as, as Dave was pointing out earlier, the real issue here, quick answer, is lack of visibility and the fear that you must feel as a business owner entrepreneur. Oh, I think that is very real. It is hard enough to like build a business and have all of the normal risks that come with that. Now you're trying to figure out how to do, if you can even open up your business for most of these small business owners. And so it's, I think I agree with Dave, it's any guidance that the government can provide around, you know, this is what it would look like when we would reopen. Um, this is what we can do if, you know, PPP runs out and this is what, what we could provide after that eight weeks. I think some of that guidance would be very, very helpful because this is a huge part of the American economy. And a scary part, Dave, very quickly, if you had to open and then reclose, that would be even worse, right? 
Totally. And I'm, I'm with Michelle on this. And I think what needs to happen in Washington, D.C. is an end to the name calling and the vitriol. And we need both sides to come together and solve this. Thank you very much for giving us the chance to talk about this. Well, we've enjoyed having you both uh, here this evening. Thank you so much. And amen to that last thought, Dave. Uh, we, the last thing we need is acrimony right now. Thank you all very much for joining us this evening uh, for this special report. For all of us at CNBC, our gratitude. I'm Tyler Matheson. Have a nice weekend. And back in the game is next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.